Join the only roundtable podcast in compliance with five of the top commentators in compliance. Mike Volkov brings 35 years of legal experience. Matt Kelly is the founder and editor of Radical Compliance. Jay Rosen is Mr. Monitor who knows his way around the culture of compliance. And Jonathan Armstrong, a partner at Cordery Compliance in London, rounds out this top group of compliance practitioners. Check out the rants and shout out at the end of each episode. Hosted by Tom Fox, the voice of compliance. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode, we take a deep dive into the statement by President Biden on corruption as a national security issue and his memorandum. We're also joined by special guest Courtney Nordrum, who joins Matt Kelly, Jonathan Marks, Mike Volkoff, and Tom Fox on this episode of Everything Compliance. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Everything Compliance. Today, we're extraordinarily thrilled to be joined by a special guest panelist. Courtney Nordrum is going to be with us, and we are going to take up President Biden's statement and memorandum on corruption as a national security interest. We're going to explore it from several angles. Uh, we are going to go geographically from west to east today, so we're going to start with Mike Volkoff. Mike, uh, you have been a U.S. prosecutor. You have worked on Capitol Hill. Uh, I was wondering what your thoughts on this statement might, what they, what it might mean from the U.S. government perspective, the agencies and department the uh, president named in his memorandum, and how uh, the U.S. government might implement the thoughts of the president on this uh, issue. Well, I think this is uh, the memorandum that was issued is a is a significant action. Um, I guess uh, the the proof will be in what comes out of this. It's a two hundred day process for um, coming up with uh, interagency recommendations, and I think we're going to see a lot of things that are going to be really interesting. The statement itself. Just, I mean, this has to be sort of the wish list of every corruption uh, fighter and policy person globally, uh, because the statement of policy is is absolutely like it's a list of everything that everyone has ever talked about in terms of the impact that corruption has. Uh, and you know, a lot of people go back to the early, you know, the nine eleven. And the response uh, of the Justice Department in terms of becoming more aggressive in FCPA enforcement. And a lot of people thought that one of the motivations, the driving motivation for that was the impact that corruption had on uh, the development of uh, economies uh, around the globe and that uh, sort of corruption undermined democracy, undermined stable governments, which would in turn lead to sort of uh, breeding grounds for terrorism. Um, what they're saying here, though, is something even broader than that, much broader. And uh, I think it's incredible that it became part of our national security process uh, now. Now, what's the impact? Uh, I think there's a lot of ways that this, can, a lot of results that could come out of this, uh, particularly with the agencies involved. Uh, we have, you know, Treasury, Defense, Justice, Commerce, Energy, Homeland Security, uh, and down to the CIA and National Security Agency as well. I think what at least, you know, some of the headlines that will come out of this are going to be several. One is I think there's going to be legislation uh, that is sent uh, to Congress, which may include um, some additional uh, laws or let's say, toughening of existing laws or trying to reform certain laws, including the FCPA, to make it uh, more aggressive. It's a five-year offense right now, meaning the, the maximum punishment is five years uh, for a violation. That's not true with regard to the books and records and other things, but at least the anti-bribery portion. Uh, but I also, there are other, this, this memo also goes towards uh, fighting domestic corruption and uh, the Justice Department has had a laundry list of legislative proposals that they've wanted. 
uh, for years in fixing some of the decisions uh, in around uh, corruption cases. There's some case law on it that they wanted to try to fix. Uh, so I think we're going to see a, a broad legislative approach. We're going to see uh, maybe even building more on the Anti-Money Laundering Act. We have here a, re, uh, a recitation of the importance of getting at beneficial ownership, um, and we may see sort of more proposals in that area. Uh, and then in the in the end, probably the most uh, significant thing is going to be resources, uh, because the Justice Department is only as good or uh, is only as powerful as they have resources. And uh, you can always tell what, where things are going to go when you watch the Justice Department, the Treasury Department, uh, and other agency resources committed to this process. The other thing is that there's an, the last point I would make is sort of on the international front. The, there's no doubt that the Justice Department and the United States government has worked very well in the international front to, for example, train prosecutors to prosecute uh, corruption cases, uh, to build relationships with international law enforcement agencies. We've seen, you know, a sea change in terms of the participation of uh, global enforcement uh, and division of sort of proceeds and, and labor. Uh, so we're gonna see um, another sort of push in that area We'll see uh, more Justice Department lawyers involved in the FCPA, as well as domestic enforcement of corruption laws. And we'll see uh, more uh, dedicated to the tracking of assets and the asset kleptocracy uh, initiative. Uh, in, in the end, uh, I think there's a real chance uh, here, and we have to see what they come up with, of, uh, of a, a significant impact in this area. So I think... Let's watch, stay tuned, and uh, we'll see what happens. Mike, in terms of the uh, enforcement of the uh, FCPA, do you see this as a clearing call for any more aggressive enforcement, or do you feel like the Department of Justice has really, through multiple administrations now, uh, been aggressive and enforce, in enforcing the FCPA, and that would continue uh, really on a non-political basis? I think it's going to continue uh, to grow. I think they're going to see more FBI agents assigned to it. You're going to have more prosecutors. And I expect that, and here's one thing that's going to really exponentially increase enforcement, is they're going, there's going to be a directive from the Justice Department to the U.S. Attorney's offices to establish uh, specific units to, um, you know, increase for increasing um, their enforcement of FCPA, but also uh, domestic corruption cases. And I think it's about time, uh, and I think it's uh, a welcome uh, development, but I think we're going to see more cases. Uh, and, and one of the incongruities that I think they're going to address as well, Tom, is the fact that, look, uh, every, every corruption case involves money laundering. Money laundering carries a heavy penalty of zero to 20 years. And what they're going to argue is, look, why should we have bribery as a zero to five-year offense uh, when we are also punishing people for money laundering of proceeds of corruption uh, with zero to 20 years? So I think there's going to be a real push. So we'll see more cases and uh, legislative improvements and then we're going to see resources in the end, you know, accountability down to the down to the district level. Matt, do you have a question for Mike? I do have a question, uh, Mike. I was curious. I, I wholly agree that in concept, this would mean more forceful or muscular prosecution of FCPA cases. Um, but I'm trying to figure out what would that actually look like especially when we have the FCPA corporate enforcement policy. And originally, my question to you was going to be, could we see more use of uh, monetary penalties from the Justice Department? Like the SEC has said, you know, there's a commissioner who has said that they should revisit using monetary penalties in SEC securities laws cases um, and mm -hmm. kind of outlining, well, why shouldn't we? That's what penalties are for. 
And I was wondering, okay, how might something like that, more aggressive use of penalties, work in the Justice Department with FCPA cases? Is that what this means? But if that's the case, then that kind of undermines the whole premise of the corporate enforcement policy. So like, I'm, I'm kind of stuck trying to figure out how we square all of this. Um, and I was just curious what you think. Well, I think there'll, there'll definitely be an increase in the number of cases. Yeah. Um, okay. And we got that. Uh, but I don't think they're going to tinker with the corporate enforcement policy. I think that the Justice Department feels pretty comfortable where they are, and they're not going to use this as a way to undermine that. Um, so I think that's but you raise another issue, though, is when we when they settle with companies and the amount of money that is ultimately um, charged against the company, I can see that increasing. Um, I, you know, frankly, um, you know, they'll still give a discount. OK, but they're probably going to start with uh, a little bit higher penalty. They also may go to the Sentencing Commission and recommend changes to the guideline ranges, yeah. you know, in terms of the financial penalties. And that could have an impact. The other thing I think is that there's going to be um, definitely even more um, more of an initiative to prosecute individuals. And um, so I think we'll see that. But the, in terms of the penalties, I, I hear you on that. I frankly have thought that the penalties have been a little bit lower lately, at least under the Trump administration, on a per case basis, even though they had some big cases. But I feel like some of those cases could have been charged at higher amounts of money and they gave them pretty big discounts or they gave them, you know, they they sort of fudged some of the calculations. So I would like to see that. But, you know, then the argument, Matt, is, OK, you're charging a lot of money from these companies and who gets hurt in the end? It's the shareholders. It's not really any of the people at the top. And and that, you know, I don't know how far that argument goes. I mean, I kind of be, kind of be curious to hear your reaction to that. Well, uh, I think the most interesting statement about penalties actually did come from that SEC commissioner, Carolyn Crenshaw, uh, mm-hmm. earlier this year, where uh, she rather strikingly said, yeah, shareholders pay penalties. What's your point? Mis- penalties are for misconduct. If a company commits misconduct and you owned it, Blam. Um, you know, like companies have to learn their lessons. It was a very provocative argument, and I'm not sure whether the SEC under Chairman Gensler will fully embrace all of her ideas. Um, but I almost thought that she was kind of laying down the extreme case so that Gensler could come in 70 percent of the way there and look like he's reasonable. But I don't yeah. really know how all of that would translate into a criminal case with the Justice Department, where if the, I don't know, the deputy attorney general stood up and said, yeah, penalties are there for a reason and we're going to use it. That's a great way to get everybody in the corporate world to shut up and not self-report and see if you can like take the gamble and maybe nobody will find out. So I don't know that they are going to do that. Um, well, I will two, but two, but two points, though, Matt, is they'll go to the Sentencing Commission and say, raise the penalty ranges for uh, corruption crimes, be it domestic yeah. or be it uh, and raise the fine amounts for organizations so that it, they'll start at much higher points. And I could see them doing that as well. The second point on the shareholders is, I mean, you can make the argument on shareholder democracy, you know, if there is a democracy among shareholders, which is arguable, people argue about that. But if they're bad bad actors, then the shareholders have to hold the directors and the officers ultimately accountable. Yeah. And you know, so the argument could be, yeah, we're going to punish the shareholders and they should be taking action themselves to change the organization. And specifically in the securities law context, I was always struck several years ago, former commissioner Michael Piwawar, who is a conservative Republican. Mm-hmm. Uh, he mm-hmm. gave a forceful speech saying, look, you know, you buy these companies and you know what you're getting into. He had no problem with using penalties in an FCPA case because the risk was disclosed. You knew it when you bought the shares and boom. OK, like, look, these things happen. Um, so I, I do see certainly in that context, there's maybe more grounds for more penalties. And like, look, plenty of FCPA cases are going to involve the SEC, too. 
Um, but I'll, I will be curious. And I think your point about uh, going to the Sentencing Commission is a good one that uh, that would solve a lot of these philosophical problems, to, to put it. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Mike, I have one more question for you. Uh, by making corruption a national security issue, would you foresee the National Security Division at the Department of Justice becoming involved in what we've seen as traditional FCPA or bribery and corruption cases similar to the National Security Division's involvement in the SAP export control uh, fine and penalty that was recently issued? Well, you know what? That's an interesting question. Uh, I mean, I know the guy who just got nominated to be the head of it, he would love to do the corruption cases. I just think that there's, it'll be an internal political battle, um, but maybe maybe the National Security Division will dedicate some resources to it, um, you know, or they'll have like a cross, you know, they'll sort of do some cases together. That's a really, that's a possibility as well. I mean, look, it's a big deal to say this is a net, I mean, to have the National Security Council issuing something like this, I mean, it is the corruption fighter's dream to have this issue elevated to what it should be. Uh, and and I can see people jockeying for whenever there's resources and all that and, and high publicity, people in the government jockey for positions in here. And I could see that where the National Security Division could make the argument to the attorney general that they should have some you know, role in this as well. So Courtney Nordrum, uh, first of all, a shout out as my co-host on Survive and Thrive, the latest star in the Compliance Podcast Network firmament. Uh, you, uh, I was intrigued to ask you about what does this mean for you as a chief compliance officer and a uh, head of a corporate compliance function? Because the president's statement specifically said the private sector was a part of this battle against corruption. So how does this come down to your level and how do you utilize this statement in your discussions with senior management and the board of directors? Yeah, well, I'm in a unique position at, at least with um, everybody here where I don't have to um, be ahead of the game to try and sell services on how to get people compliant. I just have to do the compliance. So in some ways it's easier, in some ways it's harder. So for, for me, I am really already starting to formulate how to speak to the board and our senior leadership. So we have, we call them the ELT, the executive leadership team, about what this means. So I am a chief compliance officer of a publicly traded company that operates in the financial industry. And so Biden was talking directly about companies like mine which means I am going to have to be on top of this and I'm gonna to have to make sure that the board is also on top of this. As far as getting on top of it, I'm probably, I, I think I'm in a holding pattern until those 200 days are coming to a close and we're starting to get to see what the regulations, <laughs> what the guidance is going to look like because I need actual rules and guidance to build a program around rather than just guessing where it's going to go. Once we get the rules, once we get the guidance though, we're gonna to have to turn it on almost instantly. And for folks who are not used to operating um, with a heavy AML or anti-corruption focus, this is going to be an uphill battle, I think. We are used to doing training and speaking about bribery generally like don't lie, cheat and steal compliance. But I think that there's going to be uh, an, an increased focus on what this means in corporations of all sizes, not just publicly traded, not just where the shareholders are going to hold you accountable, but corporations generally, how does this change your operations? So key for us, and I've already reached out to some on my team is going to be a gap analysis, a risk assessment, step one. Um, where do the new regulations, legislation, guidance say we need to be, and where are we? And how far are those two things from each other? I hope they're this far from each other because um, my budget says they should be this far from each other. But I, 
know that it's, it's likely that they're going to be farther apart. And so the first step in figuring out what we're going to have to change and what we're going to have to do is doing that gap analysis. Likely going to have to update our code. It's our Bible. Ta, you and I talk about it frequently. It is um, going to need to be updated to reflect the new focus on anti-corruption and probably a more specific focus. We're going to have to do training updates and then controls and process updates. So I anticipate that we're going to have to roll out additional controls and change our processes. The beneficial ownership piece alone um, is going to significantly change part of what we do as an organization, at least in my organization. So we're going to have to anticipate that we need, may need more resources, both humans to do the work and money to buy the software or, or tools we need to assist in doing that work. Um, the anti-corruption and AML policies, the programs, those are all going to have to be revised. And kind of a, a big chunk that is a little amorphous and a little harder to tackle would be the monitoring and auditing piece. So once we know what we have to do, we then have to figure out how to do it, um, which every CCO, we're experts at this. This is what we do. We operationalize. Then we have to do it. But then we also have to figure out how to monitor and audit that we're doing it properly. And until we get some of the enforcement cases going, some of the investigations, we're not necessarily sure what the government is going to be looking for. So we're it's like with the FCPA, they didn't start actually prosecuting under it for years. And so we're going to be in this kind of gray area, I think probably for a couple of years where everyone's going to be trying to do their best to meet the regulations, but it won't be really clear what the focus is going to be like until probably 2023, 2024. So now I have to break that all down for the board and be like, hey guys, give me a lot of money and some headcount. And in 2024, I'll tell you if we did a good enough job. Um, so that's kind of what I'm thinking about as a CCO. As a human, I'm also excited that the administration is tackling anti-corruption. I think it's important. I think we could use some more teeth behind what um, we have as a country. And so I'm excited that we're moving in this direction, but it's going to be a lot of work and trying to figure out a lot of unknowns. So Courtney, uh, in these discussions with uh, the board and senior management, can you actually, will you be able to point to the statement itself or the memorandum? Will you wait until there's perhaps additional clarity, as Mike has talked about, after the uh, U.S. government agencies come back for their report? Will you say, hey, guys, this is coming. I'm going to give you more information later. What's your communication strategy with uh, upper management and the board? I've already uh, communicated some to our leadership to say, hey, this is coming. This is something that we're going to have to be prepared for and changes are going to need to happen. So in a few months, when I come to you and tell you we need changes, this is the background on that. For the board, I'm going to probably put it as a bullet in my uh, quarterly update. So for the next update we give, I will say, hey, this is new, I'm gonna quote from the memo, basically anti-corruption AML are now considered a security issue. That means that there's going to be increased enforcement, there's going to be increased oversight, and we really need to make sure that we are ticking all of the boxes as we build out an increased program. As we get more detailed, I'll fill them in on the quarterly updates that I give. Uh, I usually end with my updates with a slide on what's coming next and what the big risks are from a compliance perspective. And so that will be a big part of what we're looking at for upcoming risks, probably for the next year. Jonathan Marks, um, I was really intrigued uh, to visit with you on the President Biden statement and memorandum 
from your expertise as an internal auditor, and Courtney touched on uh, perhaps a role of audit, but you as an independent uh, outside auditor, uh, number one, how do you educate your clients? But number two, if you were brought in to perform an audit uh, after this uh, statement was released in six months, nine months, 12 months, or, or a couple of years down the road, are you looking for anything different, more rigor, or how would you approach this from your perspective? You know, I take a little bit different approach. Uh, I, I think that everything that was in the statement is something that we should have all expected. And, you know, I'm looking at, you know, all the things that have been released as shot across the bowels that the regulatory authorities have zero tolerance for behavior like this. And we're focusing on compliance programs. You know, you have the evaluation of corporate compliance programs that came out you know, that guidance document, the framework, the framework for OFAC compliance, you know, um, the evaluation of corporate compliance programs and criminal antitrust investigations, the FCPA resource guide reissued. So I look at these much like, you know, when when, um, you know, as 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 really just warning shots that your compliance program just can't be ad hoc anymore. And, you know, you should be focusing on I think Courtney said, you know, risk assessments. Absolutely. You know, if your risk assessment is Mickey Mouse, you know, maybe it's time to, you know, kind of turn up the heat a little bit and make it a little bit more robust. But, you know, this all boils down to fraud, right? You could talk about money laundering and you're talking about money laundering, you're talking about corruption. You know, these are all fraud activities. So, you know, as you well know, I've done a ton of fraud risk assessments in my career. I talk about this all the time, but it really boils down to fraud. And <clears throat> that means that. In order to combat that, you're going to have to have an enterprise risk resilient ecosystem. And that means that compliance, internal audit, general counsel, and you know, management need to all be on the same page. And if they're not, then you have this siloed effect and you're not looking at risks in the right way. And the way we do this is, you know, it all it all really starts with a good governance framework. And so I, I know Mike Volkoff hates the word governance, but um, you know, I think that if, you know, after looking at this statement, I think it's a wake up call for organizations, private, public or whatever. You know, this is it. fun times over. You know, you're not giving compliance budgets. That's your fault. You know, maybe that's something that they look harder on, you know, from a regulatory perspective when they're looking at assessing fines and penalties and the like. Are they properly resourced? You know, do you have the right people involved? You know, how could a $3 billion company have one compliance person in their department? You know, maybe that's maybe that's not functional in the way, in the, in the way that works. But, you know, internal audit, I, I also think it's an, a wake-up call for internal audit. Um, you know, there's been guidelines that have been issued by the IIA for things that internal audit should be looking at. You know, if I can recall correctly, it talks about tone at the top. It talks about the risk assessment process. It talks about policies and procedures. It goes into some spe very specific areas related to designing audits from a geography and industry perspective, you know, hiring and employment, you know, those types of things, you know, third-party vendor management, another big one that we all talk about all the time. You know, if, if, if it still rings true that over 90% of all the FCPA cases, you know, either, you know, manifest themselves in, a, in some third-party environment, and you don't have a third-party risk management program today, shame on you. I don't care who you are. So, you know, I, I read I read what was out there. I'll, I'll admit I didn't read it in grave detail, but I just thought to myself, hey, you know, if you're doing all the right things, you know, and, you're, and you, you, you took the evaluation of corporate compliance programs seriously, and you, you're looking at the FCPA resource guide, and you truly understand fraud, right? You know, AML and BSA, that's great. You know, and money laundering, that's great, but that's a fraud activity, right? Fraud has three different elements to it. They have the act, the concealment strategy, and the conversion. And the way they try the concealment is through money laundering. So people all get caught up, uh, well, you know, fraud is pressure, opportunity, and rationalization. You know, and if you're in my world, it's competence and arrogance as well. But, you know, the triangle of fraud action is really where you should be looking at this. So we really should be combining the two in this effort and looking at, you know, not only the the pieces of why somebody commits a fraud, but, you know, we should be looking at really understanding fraud within the organization. And, and that's the way I'm looking at it. Um, so, again, it's just a little bit different. I would not wait at all. 
I think, again, this is a perfect time to assess where we are. And, you know, if you have gaps and, and remediation steps to take now, I think those are the things that you should plan for now, because I only think that the enforcement is going to get tighter and heavier. And, you know, if, if the sentencing guidelines change, um, you know, that's, you know, you know, that's certainly another quiver, you know, an arrow in the quiver of the government, but I don't, I looked at this and said, yep, okay, let's keep going. Let's, let's, let's take what we have and what we know and, you know, try to, try to assess where we are and move forward. I do. So the crime isn't changing. We know that the elements of the crime are going to be consistent. The criminals are pretty consistent. How is how we audit going to change or how do you anticipate how that's going to change? Well, I, I, again, I go back to the evaluation of corporate compliance programs where they talked about the use of data analytics and the feedback loop and how internal audit really assessed their audit plan. You know, all re the risk landscapes are constantly changing. The risk assessments should be not a set it and forget it activity. You know, as the cadence of things and events change, that risk assessment needs to be adjusted. The board and the audit committee need to understand that there needs to be some fluidity here and less 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 regimented things. You know, did we do these audits and these in, in you know in, you know in this order? No, and the reason that we didn't is because we have this risk that emerged and we need to assess that risk. That's the right thing to be doing. Um, you know, I think the the whole concept of what an internal auditor is 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 changing. You know. Um, I think it, a lot of this goes back to again some of the some of the blocking and tackling that everybody's failing at. Uh, I, 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 you know, Matt Kelly is my witness. I've asked three thousand people, and I say, can you give me a definition of an internal control? And I was willing to give out big bucks for it, and not one person has ever given me a definition of an internal control. So if you can't define it, how can you build it or evaluate it? So you know, internal monitors out there, if you if you don't know how to build an internal control. You know, you should really be thinking about that today. But, you know, all seriousness aside, you know, I think it goes back to, you know, the skill sets that you're going to need moving forward. You're going to need people that have skill sets in data mining and data analytics, building dashboards, using that feedback loop, you know, to really change the risk assessment. And you know what? It's going to change how an audit committee has to think as well, you know. Uh, you know, I think the Bluebell ice cream case really woke us up when it came, when it came to, you know, hey, we have a compliance program, wonderful, but is it really working? You know, what things should we be aware of from a board perspective? So sitting on your hands these days or just taking up a seat and collecting a paycheck, I think those days are over. And, you know, uh, you know, I, I, I'm pretty strong about this, but I see it. I live it every single day. And it's just frustrating to me that people still are. Some of them are. They just still don't get it. Uh, with, thank Matt, you, Tom. Matt, you wrote a, a blog post. Yeah, Matt, let me introduce this because you wrote a blog post about this. And from what I gathered, it uh, you congratulated the president. It was a nice starting point. But for you, it, it was only a starting point. And I wanted to see where or ask you, what do you see perhaps other initiatives, either government or, or private sector, uh, might be appropriate? And um, is, is this just a starting point in your view? Uh, sure, I'll dive all into that. Although I I will attest to what Jonathan March just said. I was one of those three thousand people who, when he sprung the internal control question on me, I was not really prepared to give a good answer. Jonathan didn't tell me he'd give me big bucks for getting it right. That maybe that would have colored my thinking. But um, the presidential memo. So I was very intrigued by this. I suppose we should first say, you know, I, I thought it was instructive to get a better sense of what is the actual legal document that he had put out. Mm -hmm. um, it is not the same as an executive order, which typically is much more specific about agency X, Y, and Z. You must do this. You must do it within 30 days. And once it's done, that's going to be how we do things until a future executive order says otherwise. This isn't that. This is more just a statement uh, directing the government agencies to go and think through what should we do about a problem, corruption, and let's make sure that anti-corruption is a big, important priority. I'm all for that. Um, I tend to be a little bit more, uh, a little less sanguine about how important this document is. Uh, I, is it some sort of sea change in how we'll handle corruption? I'm not sure yet. 
And to Mike Volkov's original point, we really have to wait to see what are these agencies going to come back with by the end of the year to say, we recommend doing this, this, and this. But um, was FCPA enforcement not going to increase absent this anti-corruption memo? I don't think so. I think it was going to increase no matter if this memo existed or not. Uh, what really intrigued me was more from a regulatory and policy and legislative perspective, what might actually come out of this. And the thing that nobody has mentioned yet here, but I think is a big driver of this, is we've talked about illicit finance, we've talked about money laundering, nobody has specifically said cryptocurrency, which I think that is a big part of the president's thinking, that cryptocurrency is clearly an epidemic of corruption that is already happening, and it is happening in very practical national security ways when we have businesses like JBS losing its meat production for a day or two, Colonial Pipeline losing its uh, gasoline supplies for nearly a week. And what was the mechanism to do all of this is crypto. If there were no cryptocurrencies, would those ransomware attackers have pulled the stunts that they did? And we don't have a good regulatory framework yet to track that down. So my very first question as I was reading through this is, what sort of proposals will we have to regulate cryptocurrency at the far side of this go back and think up recommendations part? Um, because if we come forward with this big presidential decree that we're really going to tackle crypto as a means of corruption and a national security threat, that gives various agencies like the Securities and Exchange Commission a lot of cover to come up with specific crypto regulation. And now suddenly everybody who's in financial firms listening, well, now, now you're going to get touched because we all know that crypto is going to be the hot big thing in banking. And here comes the Biden administration maybe in 2022 trying to cool that off. So that's one big thing I would think about. I would also look at maybe more aggressive uh, discussions around or use of um, disclosure of beneficial owners. And I know in the AMLA money laundering bill that passed in December, uh, shell companies are going to be outlawed. But, you know, could we see something as far-fetched as a national public registry of who owns these shell companies, uh, which would serve numerous points in this memo? It would crack down on money laundering. It would provide more transparency. It would boost civil society because a whole lot of NGOs would go bananas with data like that if it were public and put out all sorts of anti-corruption analyses. And that's part of where the president wants to go. So we could see something like that, I think. Um, and, you know, those are the kind of questions that are rolling around in my mind. But I really just keep coming back to cryptocurrency um, because I think that is a threat that straddles money laundering, corruption, and national security all at once. So is this memo going to result in more regulation of crypto? Oh yeah, abs I, I would bet a mortgage payment on that next, next year. Um, the other thing that I personally would like to see that I also think would affect companies a lot is a more standardized approach to domestic corruption, which these days is all over the map. Um, you can have local or state or federal prosecutors all deciding to get a piece of the action on some corrupt uh, operation. Um, I don't know what that would look like, because if we had a Domestic Corrupt Practices Act at the federal level, is that somehow going to criminalize local government incentives that we might give to businesses or that businesses will make investment pledges? Like there's a lot of economic development that is in a gray area that. I wonder how a Domestic Corrupt Practices Act would affect that. Um, and then on the other hand, I can easily see political types, uh, particularly Republicans, uh, really getting uncomfortable with the idea of a Domestic Corrupt Practices Act. They'll say something like, we're going to federalize anti-corruption and we shouldn't be doing it. Um, so I don't know that that would go very far, but maybe it would be something like a new Justice Department code of practice on how to uh, U.S. attorneys would get involved in domestic corruption cases. Uh, I would love to see that wacko Supreme Court decision from a couple of years ago. What was that? McConnell, McDonnell versus U.S. that kind of gutted our ability to prosecute bribery 
that's got to be changed. And I get that legally it was correct, but morally and common sense wise, we need to fix that. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if we see a law like that. Um, there's a lot that could come out of this. You have to think through what are the biggest sweeping things that would also not become a political football in 2022? Regulation of cryptocurrency would be one of those things. It's not going to be too many people who are pro money laundering with a currency that answers to no one. Um, so that's the kind of stuff that I'm looking at. And I'm wondering, is that what we're going to see next year? And then after that, it could very quickly become something that is a real sticky challenge for corporate compliance officers. Matt, would you also see uh, perhaps a crook act or something similar, which tries to criminalize the bribe receiver uh, outside the United States as well? You know, that's a good point. I think actually you would, because that is something that um, there's a lot of political upside to doing that. There's not much political downside to it. Uh, I know many people who have said, especially conservatives who are opposed to vigorous uh, corporate enforcement of the bribe giver, and they always run around saying, well, what about criminalizing the bribe taker? Yeah, sure. They would be on board with that. And as a practical matter, are we then going to start extraditing a corrupt assistant minister of whatever in some highly corrupt nation to face FCPA charges in New York or D.C.? Like, no, we're not going to. Um, but it couldn't hurt to have that on the books. So I think that's kind of low hanging fruit. Sure. Yeah. Well, they certainly would not be able to take a uh, vacation to Euro Disneyland because France would extradite them. So. Uh, it could put some pressure, at least curtail their vacations to Western Europe, as we've seen happen a few times. Um, lady and gentlemen, we are now on to fan favorite section, shout outs and rants. Uh, we will keep the same geographic order um, with uh, Mike Volkoff, Courtney Nordrum, Jonathan Marks, and concluding uh, with Matt Kelly and then myself. So, Mr. Volkoff, what do you have for us today? Well, it's a it's a rant, but it's a familiar one. Uh, I mean, the recent revelations from the Justice Department uh, about their um, activities relating to members of Congress and other folks in terms of getting information from Apple and then putting Apple on a gag order. Um, look, I and I'm not trying to overreact to this thing, but there was a lot of misconduct that occurred at the Justice Department years ago in the last administration. And I think that, you know, Merrick Garland is up to now sort of looking forward, but I think there has to be some accountability as to who are some of the people that were involved in this. And even if they're uh, career people, uh, they, have, they have to be held accountable as well. Uh, for some of these behaviors, you know, there was obviously violation of the communications between the White House policy uh, with the Justice Department, and they didn't really care about it, the Attorney General Barr. Uh, but to hear now that they were looking into the backgrounds and getting information uh, to conduct surveillance, if they if they could build the case on Adam Schiff and other people in Congress, is just, it's reprehensible. And somebody should be held accountable for all of this. Courtney Nordrum. I want to rant about um, OSHA because we've been waiting since late January and certainly since March for OSHA to issue some COVID-19 rules. And this week they did, but only for healthcare. And so while the country is, is greatly recovering from COVID-19, businesses, private businesses are still trying and struggling to figure out how to do the right thing to protect employees while also operating as a business. And the hope was that OSHA was going to give us some guidelines or some rules that said you must do X, Y, and Z. And they did if you're in healthcare. Outside of healthcare, they basically said, tell your people COVID-19 is a thing and give them masks if they want them, um, which was entirely unhelpful. And so we've, we've gotten back to a place where it's a lot of guessing and a lot of city, county, and state-specific laws that don't necessarily even correspond with each other. 
So for anyone who's out there having to struggle with figuring out how to reopen a building or continue operating under COVID rules, this was uh, a, a giant disappointment for all of us. Jonathan Marks. Well, Matt, you um, you kind of crushed me, but that's okay. Um, I, I do, you know, from a coin perspective, if you're not thinking about it, you know, and how it's going to impact your business and how it impacts risk across your business, again, you know, shame on you. Um, but, you know, my, my shout out this week is to the organization that was established in 1908 um, by Bonaparte, Attorney General Bonaparte, under Teddy Roosevelt, which is the FBI. Um, these special agents, I think, in the in the colonial pipeline matter, recovered 63 or almost 64 of the 75 bitcoins, or 2.3 million dollars of the 4.3 million. So that's my that's my shout out to all of this. My my rant is is really on the other side of this, and that is to every organization out there that thinks they have some type of cyber mechanism or defense to you know to stop everything that's coming through their their walls or or whatever. Um, nobody's perfect, and you know there's a lot of crazy stuff out there when it comes to you know cyber defense and cyber hygiene. And, and I think this, again, is one of those wake-up calls where organizations really need to go back and look at where their, you know, where the jewels of the company lie and uh, assume through uh, crisis management and crisis simulation, if in fact we were hacked, what would we do? Uh, I think Colonial got lucky that, um, that they were able to get back up online. And luck doesn't ask luck doesn't last forever. So, you know, to, to everyone out there, you know, with regards to, you know, bit, you know, whether it's uh, coin or 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 cybersecurity or cyber hygiene, I, I think again, this is one of those wake up calls. So, you know, I'm in a wake up call mood this week, as you can tell. Matt Kelly. Uh, before I get to my rant, I just wanted to echo what Jonathan said about the FBI getting the Bitcoin back for Colonial. And one thing we should all watch is if the FBI can also get back Bitcoin for JBS. Um, if the FBI has figured out how to obtain the private key for Bitcoin transactions, that will be a big deal. And it will be a big, big wake up call, so to speak. Uh, to attackers uh, that maybe these ransomware attacks are not going to be as lucrative as they thought. It was very interesting to see how the FBI had pulled that off. Excellent work to them. That said, uh, I am actually here to rant about, uh, Tom, I'm going to invade Texas and rant about Congressman Louis Gohmert this week, <laughs> uh, who I wanted to say he has made the dumbest statement from any Texas <laughs> politician ever. I'm not sure, Tom, you could probably lecture me for four hours about why I'm wrong on that. But what he did say earlier this week was in a congressional hearing, he asked the National Forest Service to investigate changing the orbit of the moon or the Earth <laughs> to uh, improve our chances of responding to climate change. Uh, this is astonishing first because, wait a minute, Gomert actually believes climate change is real. I thought that would be a forbidden thing in the sacred texts of Texas conservatives. Um, but, you know, just for anybody who thinks, no, this is the media actually distorting what he said. No, it's not. He actually said on tape, is there anything the National Forest Service can do to change the course of the moon's orbit or the Earth's orbit around the sun that would have profound effects on our climate? Well, yes, it would, as any person who's watching sci-fi would know, um, <laughs> but somebody somewhere has to tell Louis Gohmert that, no, actually, we can't change the orbit of the moon or the Earth, uh, anybody, let alone the National Forest Service. Uh, <laughs> so I, I don't know, Tom, what else in the long annals. But Matt, hey, Matt, 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 hey, Matt, I got to tell you, though, did you see the answer that the, the woman gave the, from the National Forest Service? She said... We'll get back to you on yeah. that. Yeah, Everline said, oh, we'll have to follow up with you and get back to you on that. And what a great yeah, response. Forward to the memo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why the forestry people? Why not NASA? Well, it's, uh, I can't. Tom, shed light on this for us. I can't say it's, 
Yeah, I can't say it's uh, the most stupid, but it's in the top three. So I'll have to get back to you on that one. Nevertheless, uh, I want to have a shout out today because uh, yesterday a federal grand jury returned an indictment against uh, two Americans, Elliot Broidy and Nikki Lum Davis, but also against our old friend Jay Lowe, uh, the perpetrator of the 1MDB fraud. But this was for orchestrating an unregistered back-channel campaign in beginning in 2017 to uh, influence the uh, then-Trump administration to drop the investigation of J-Lo and others uh, in the 1MDB investigation. So there were rumors that uh, both Broidy and uh, Nikki Lum Davis were involved in this, and now they've been indicted for this. So Kudos to the Justice Department for uh, bringing this forward. The 1MDB scandal continues to resonate. And now we have uh, uh, at least allegations that J. Lo and the Chinese government tried to uh, buy influence in the United States to get the investigation dropped, which, of course, uh, it was not. So uh, on behalf of Louis Gomer and uh, the other uh, Mensa members of the great state of Texas. This has been a great episode. It's been great to have uh, Courtney join us. I hope perhaps you might be uh, willing to sit in again if it uh, wasn't uh, too terrifying an experience, Courtney. And uh, gentlemen, I look forward to our next adventure together. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Everything Compliance. We've listed the contact information for all of the participants in the show notes. So if you have any questions on anyone's commentary, please contact them directly. Also, we will be live streaming this show for the foreseeable future. Uh, Please check us out on LinkedIn or Facebook. Uh, I put out announcements with the date and time. So I hope you will join us for a live stream presentation of Everything Compliance. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.